Hi everyone, it's Bill Black, the Exit Coach from the Exit Coach Radio Show. You know, one of the biggest questions I get on the show is what exactly goes into a business exit plan and when should I start creating mine? Well, I always tell people that the best time to start was five years ago, but the next best time is now because you never know when you might need it. So we put together a free report that describes what an exit plan is and what you should know. You can get it free by texting exit plan with no spaces to 44222. That's exit plan to 44222. Again, text exit plan to 44222. Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Well, hello there. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me once again today. You know, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to have guests come back and, and go deeper on their topics. And uh, today is no exception. We have our first guest today is Andy Goal from Urgency Based Selling. He's been with us a couple times before. We've got some great reviews from his interviews, and we're going to go deeper. We're going to talk about what's going on these days that's causing people to be urgent about their urgency based selling. So, Andy, uh, welcome back. Thanks once again for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me back. My pleasure, my pleasure. I, I understand that you have been extremely busy since uh, the beginning of the year, just getting uh, tons of inquiries about your services. Uh, tell us about, first of all, tell us about what you do. We'll set the stage there. And then why do you think so many people are calling you now? I work with companies to help them with business development, with sales training, uh, sales coaching, helping sales management, really uh, most things related to sales. I think that there's a seasonality to the demand, meaning that uh, people probably didn't want to initiate a new project towards the end of the last quarter of 2019. And, you know, when the dial changed to 2020, uh, people were ready to reach out and, and, and make some of those inquiries and start some of those discussions. Folks want want to increase profitable sales, and they want to do it now, and there's um, the urgency. So uh, the one thing I'll say is it's 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 way more than I've ever seen in January. So I would I would attribute it to two things. One is concern about the possibility of a coming recession. We're overdue. And mm-hmm. secondly, maybe my marketing's a little bit better than it was. I came out with a book. <laughs> in September. So I think it's a combination of those things. That makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a new decade, new year. Um, I think there's a lot riding on this decade for a lot of, um, at least our listeners, because this is, you know, this is probably the decade that they're going to want to, uh, ramp up their business, uh, make it look as good as they can and sell it. And, as we've said many times, if your business is an engine, sales is the accelerator, so you better step on it. So uh, that's, you know, maybe that's it, Andy. And, and uh, there's, you know, like you said, there's, we're in an 11-year bull market, longest ever. Uh, people are wondering, when's it going to end? The economists are scratching their heads going, why didn't it end already? Uh, and they're saying, you know, uh, can, we, can we keep this going? So maybe in contemplation of that, people are concerned about that. What, what are some of the biggest um, questions that they're coming to you with? What are some of the things they're, they're saying you can help them with 
uh, besides, you know, increasing sales in general? Well, the I think the biggest challenge is that that salespeople are not opening new accounts. Mm-hmm. And then second behind that is where a, a customer has uh, an extensive product or service line. Uh, the the customer the the customers are cherry picking, and and they're pigeonholing them. So usually the number one thing is we want to open up new accounts, and the second is, you know, we want a bigger share of wallet. And then you know related to that is profitability concerns because our sales team isn't selling strongly enough. Um, if I could just say a word or two on that, there are two there are two neurotransmitters that get pulled into selling dopamine and norepinephrine. Uh, dopamine's the feel-good uh, neurotransmitter and is very much in my mind associated with what I call social selling, be my friend. And that's mm-hmm. an important part of selling. The, the other neurotransmitter, norepinephrine, is associated with stress. And if you just deliver dopamine, you're not a salesperson, you're a customer service rep. But but if all you develop all you deliver is dopamine in a selling situation, it encourages the prospect to treat us disrespectfully. It encourages the prospect to treat us like a doormat. In fact, I would say that without administering norepinephrine, which I'll discuss in a moment, the average salesperson who does this is giving an engraved invitation to the to the sales to the prospect to to be treated like a doormat. Uh, to be treated disrespectfully. So the idea behind norepinephrine is we need to challenge uh, the prospect's thinking, and it's got to be fair. And it's a salesperson's job to make it fair. So when we talk about the difference between a social seller and a business seller, a social seller wants to make friends. A business seller wants to earn the right to profitable business. So if all we have on the team is social sellers or a way to identify social sellers is looking at the profit profitability of of their customers. Social sellers typically bring in lower profitable uh, customers because they want to make the customer like them, and one of the best way to make a buyer like you is to cut your price. So mm-hmm. salespeople mm-hmm. And, and organizations very often uh, invite this respect by having an unbalanced presentation that focuses only on dopamine or social selling and not enough on norepinephrine conflict challenging the prospect. So I think that's a huge, huge issue I'm hearing about. Although most people wouldn't talk about uh, dopamine and norepinephrine, you know, that's the underlying science. They just say that their salespeople are weak. They're not bold. They're not strong. They don't take a position. And so what often happens then is, uh, you know, like a, a buyer will say to a salesperson who's selling something, let's say at a dollar, can you do it for 50 cents? Now, the salesperson knows they can't do it for 50 cents, but they say, I'll check with higher authority. Now, in doing that, they they give the um, the buyer the, the, the thought that maybe it's possible, but they also convey weakness. They should come right back and say, that's a ridiculous price. Nobody could do it for 50 cents. Now, if it's a buck and they ask for 99 and a half cents, okay, you know, maybe we could do something. But mm-hmm. to go from a dollar to 50 cents, that's ridiculous. And a salesperson should just say, no, we can't do that. That's ridiculous. I don't know if that's more than you wanted, but that's really the essential problem. This lack of boldness, this 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 idea that we want people to like us, and the way that transmits uh, transfers into an in, in, inappropriate amount of business development 
is that business development usually involves a good amount of rejection. And social sellers, nobody likes rejection, but social sellers wanting people to like them and they're getting rejected, they avoid the behavior. They, beho- they avoid it because it, it doesn't cohere with their core, their, their view of life. You know, they, they grew up, they learned how to be social sellers uh, when they were preteens or teens. They learned how to make nice. They, they learned how to be politically correct. And in a way, they were crippled for selling. And they brought that value system into the workforce in their early 20s. And owners kind of scratched their heads and, and wonder what the heck's going on. Because most owners are entrepreneurial. They're willing to bring the hammer down. They're willing, they're willing to bring conflict and manage conflict. And they don't understand why um, the average salesperson doesn't. The average salesperson wants a book of business to manage. They don't want to go out and be a warrior. And so if we don't have a culture that supports the sales warrior and, and, and not only supports them but you know, gives them the tools they need, we typically, uh, we typically don't get business development taking place. So those are like the constellation of issues we, we, we hear about in the inquiries, although it's mostly we're not opening up enough new sales and uh, – you know, in some cases, where you know the profitability is off, so that's what we're hearing about, and 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 the the curative, which is not an easy one, is changing the sales culture. It's like a culture transplant for the sales team, from seeing selling as a, a slimy event, a la Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman, to the salesperson as a hero, which I think we talked about in the last segment. So I don't know if that yeah. was. Too, TMI, too much information or what you wanted, but <laughs> no, hopefully it was, something it was, in there resonated with you and your listeners. It's great, and it, you know, it's taken me three interviews with you to be able to say neuropinephrine, so, uh, and I'm probably still not saying it right. However, let, let's talk about that. So uh, you know, I've always heard that basically uh, a good salesperson doesn't sell solutions. They sell the problem, then they sell the solution. So if the, owner, if the, if the buyer doesn't own the problem first, then they're never going to buy the solution. Now, is that what we're talking about on that side of things? Yeah, I would say so. I would say that the average salesperson comes in and sells, you know, I sell scotch tape as opposed to I sell a solution to things, you know, that the problem is things need to be taped together, and I have a solution for that. And and if I could build on that probably mundane example, if you're trying to open up a new account and you can't identify a crisis, you're probably not at a level where someone will listen to you. So early in a conversation, you have to say, the reason why I'm reaching out to you is your business is in crisis. It's on fire. There's a problem. Here's what it is. So, for instance, I might say to somebody, there's a recession coming. Do you have an anti-recession selling plan? Well, no, I don't, says the prospect. Now you want to offer a generic solution. So a great anti-recession selling plan involves increasing your market share now. Why? Because in a recession, the activity level is going to fall, and you don't want to have to lay off your core employees. So you want to increase market share right now. Yeah, that makes sense. How do I do that? Well, urgency-based selling is the best way to do it. So it's kind of like a three-step process. What's the crisis? What's the generic solution? So the crisis is, in the example I'm giving, is a recession is coming, winter's coming, danger's coming. 
What's the solution? Increase market share right now so that when the industry contracts, you could hold your team together. Okay, well, where do I find that solution? Now you're talking to the right guy, and, you know, then, you, and mm-hmm. then you could sell your, your specific solution. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, most people, uh, most salespeople are trained to be, you know, be my friend uh, kind of uh, training. Why, why, do, why does sales training, why was that so successful as a sales training method, and why does sales training fail? Well, part of it is mindset. So if we, th- there's a series of interlocking issues. So the first thing is mindset. And if we don't adjust the mindset, we have what I refer to as the rubber band effect. You know, you do the teaching, the mind stretches, but like a rubber band that is stretched, it snaps back into the same position and the learning is lost because the individual being trained is fighting their self-image. So that's a major reason why it fails. Another reason why it fails is it omits dealing with a major aspect of the persuasion process, which is dealing with risk aversion. The typical selling process doesn't address um, risk aversion. And so that's another reason why sales training fails. A third subtle reason, and I'm I'm not going to name the brands, but there are branded methods of of selling that's out there. And these branded methods, they get kudos from very big Fortune 100, 500 companies. So IBM may say, I used, in a testimonial, I, we used this branded selling system, and we had fantastic results. And then a, a smaller entrepreneurial company says, wow, work for IBM should work for me, and then they fail. And the reason is because with IBM, the salesperson is following the brand, which means it, you know, everybody knows IBM. If you pick up the phone and say, a salesman says, I'm from IBM, I'd love to come over and tell you about the, the latest um, uh, computer-related uh, innovations we have, a typical decision-maker would say, sure, it's IBM. If I, from a non-branded company, had the same offering and said, hey, I'm Andy from No Name Company, I've got all these great innovations, I'd love to come over and show you these computer innovations, you hang up on me. So in a big company, the sales force is successful very often because they're following the brand. And and so when you get training, it's the brand that's really succeeding. There's a small gap. They don't do this one little thing right. And so um, these branded uh, systems could come in and fix this little problem, but it's really the brand that's making it work. When you move to mid, small to mid-sized companies, say under half a billion dollars in sales, if they don't have an established brand, then if you use, an, uh, if you use a, a selling system that depends on a brand, it fails 100 out of 100 times. So what is needed? What is needed is teaching the sales team entrepreneurial school skills so they go out and become the brand, Right? So that's another major reason why sales training fails is because it doesn't really amp up the entrepreneurial skill set or supplement it or surround uh, the salesperson with skills they need. The average owner or CEO of a company wants an entrepreneurial salesperson, and when you look at the numbers, they just don't exist. Why don't they exist? Well, if you take something like the DISC profile, which identifies maybe 15 18% of the population is entrepreneurial, 
Okay, so you've got 300 million people. Say it's 20%. That's 60 million people. Half of them are in the workforce. That's 30 million people. There are 27 million small businesses. All the entrepreneurial types are working either in their own small businesses or their key executives in large organizations. So I think LinkedIn did a study that the, the most in-demand uh, job, at least in the New York metro area, the last time I looked at it, is salesperson. I think it's ahead of data scientist, so, or it's one of the top Interesting. three. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. can't get that. You usually can't get those people, but what you can do is find what I call a hybrid entrepreneur, and if you, if you teach them the right culture, you give them the right selling tools, and you give them the right selling method, you get entrepreneurial outcomes. And that's what we do with urgency-based selling. That's fantastic. That's, that's really a great overview. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a term out there that's, that's used a lot, trusted advisor. And uh, I, think, I think the question I have for you is why, why do we need to become or move towards being a trusted advisor before our experience? I mean, what, what's more important, being a trusted advisor or experience? Well, the the reason why that's an interesting question is if you talk to the average salesperson, executive, or business owner, uh, and you ask the question, how do you become a trusted advisor, what they'll tell you is, well, you know, you get a little bit of business, then a little bit more, and then maybe after one, three, five years, you become a trusted advisor. Now, when we're trying to do business development, very often we're going up against a trusted advisor. So try to imagine in your mind's eye um, a, a soccer field which is not level, flat, but it's tilted or canted at like a 30 or 40 degree angle where the opposition, your competitor, is a trusted advisor and the ball just rolls down into your net and you have to kick the ball up upfield. It's a hopeless scenario. Typically we're going on, not always, but very often we're going in on a single transaction against a trusted advisor, hopeless. So what we need to do is move the prospect to the trusted advisor position not after five years of experience or even one, but before they give us a stick of business. Now, how do you do that? Type three information. Type one information is what you know. Type two is what you know you don't know. And type three is what you don't realize you don't know. So you have to start advising your prospect and giving them high-level information, which causes the prospect to start asking him or herself, why the hell am I dealing with the incumbent? You know, Bill here keeps on giving me great advice, which I can use, and I'm getting nothing. And that's what usually leads, with persistence, to opening the closed mind, which, by the way, the core of selling, business development, is opening the closed mind. And how do we do it? With type 3 knowledge. And what are we doing? We're getting the prospect who's looking down to look up and see a higher mountain or peak of well-being. So that's what entrepreneurial selling is. That's what urgency-based selling is all about, opening the closed mind, getting the prospect to see a higher peak of well-being, and we do it with this type 3 knowledge. And so when, when owners of businesses or executives wonder why we're not opening up new accounts, which is a key issue, it's because of all this analysis. And that's why we need to become a trusted advisor before experience, because we're competing with trusted advisors. I hope that that's responsive. Yeah, yeah, Andy. I always, I always get like a page full of notes every time I talk to you, and it, it amazes me because we. This is our again our third interview. Uh, let me ask you one other question, and that is that um, often uh, in a sales situation, we'll find that yes, we're up against that current incumbent advisor, and uh, and you know, a salesperson will say, okay, I, I unseated them, I got the sale, I they said they're going to go ahead, and then we find out that they went back 
and checked with that trusted advisor, and um, and, and then the sale goes back, you know, goes back to their incumbent. Right, right. Uh, they used so, us as so, a whipping boy or whipping girl just to beat right, up the right. incumbent. And the, I, and I've heard of processes, but I'd love to hear your take on that. On how do we, how do we uh, uh, have the client, uh, if you will, divorce from the incumbent, uh, so that uh, that that sale sticks. Well, part of the process is asking for fairness all the way along. Another part of the process is really insisting on customer engagement as you're going forward. For instance, I had a first meeting the other day from this wonderful January. And the prospect had read my book. The prospect had skin in the game. It didn't mean they were going to hire me, but they were, sh- they were really showing a high level of engagement. And so, for instance, if the prospect asks you to do something, you've got to ask them to do something that's fair and reasonable. Like maybe before that, you, know, you give them a proposal, if you have a facility you want them to visit, they come visit you know, your, your, your facility. On a strategy level, though, What you want to do is you want to build a defendable position. Because in my experience, the law of the market is what you described is always going to happen. They're always going to go back and give a second shot to the incumbency. So what you're looking for is a defensive position, something that's hard for the opposition to emulate, something that your customer wants or prospect wants, and that's hard for the prospect, uh, the, the competition to emulate. So it's some combination of those things asking for fairness, looking for engagement as you go forward, and then at the strategy level, designing your offer so that it's hard for the other guy or gal to emulate you. That's my quick response. That's excellent. You know, and that's, uh, listeners, this is why you should uh, go today and uh, look for urgency-based selling, Andy Gold's book, uh, on Amazon, Andy. Anywhere you find yeah, good it, books? The, the title, it describes urgency-based selling, but the title is Innovate Now, Scale Up with 16 Breakthrough Sales Techniques. And um, what, they could go to my website to read about it. It's uh, www.urgencybasedselling.net. Terrific. Okay, well, that's that's great. You know, once again, uh, as I said, you've, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot of great information, and a lot of good reasons why you might want to call Andy Gohl or get in touch with him at urgencybasedselling.net uh, as, uh, to, to read his uh, material, hire him as a consultant, or if you're a, a Vistage member, um, uh, you might tell your, your chair to have him come in as a speaker. Um, that, that's a great use of, of time for everyone out there today. Andy, thank you so much once again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for allowing me to speak to your audience. I always enjoy it. Have a great day, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio. 